Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac went to Gerar, to, the, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all the, those land, these lands. And in your offspring all nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge." my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Verse six, so Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking least the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out, of a, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, least I died because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Bimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We have been in this series, we call it the patriarchs, like in history, in the scriptures, the Lord himself, the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish people, the fathers of our faith. Collectively, that'd be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. And we, I kind of uh, split this into seasons based on the different patriarchs. First season was Abraham, kind of longer because there's a lot about Abraham. In fact, the scripture probably has the most one person's dedicated to other than the Lord himself would probably be Abraham. Isaac, on the other hand, um, much less. I talked about for this season, we are subletting out to the BBC and it's just a few episodes. And uh, actually, this is our last, this will be the last sermon solely dedicated to Isaac because Isaac just did, did not have, he just doesn't have a lot written about him. In fact, uh, Griffin Thomas in his devotion, devotional on Genesis, he said that Isaac was an ordinary son of a great father and an ordinary father of a great son. And I do think that's true. As we see in his life, there's not a ton of drama. But I think Abraham and Isaac's son Jacob, they would have loved to live the life that Isaac lived. Because living a good life is better than living the good life. Living a life in humble submission to God is, is where it's at. It's where we should be trying to live living a peaceful life, working with our hands, not stirring up controversy. That's a good life. Now, with saying that, we are reading today, in our scripture today, Isaac messes up bad twice. He's not a perfect person. He's not the seed of the woman that God prophesied about in Genesis 3. No, unfortunately, he follows in some of the poor ways his father followed as well, as following in the blessed ways of faith. Um, in Genesis, there is a circular, there's a circular story that goes throughout it in which you see a family, you see a family starting out good. Our first family, Adam and Eve starting off good. Then sin enters the picture. Sin destroys relationship. And after the relationship has been destroyed, God restores the relationship, but there's still, there's this seed. There's this sin that permeates through. And the next generation, we see this generation also falling. So we see with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. We see similar sins between all the generations the sin of deception. You know, when we started this series, I went throughout the whole scripture for you and showed you the circular nature, but how Christ breaks it in redemption. And how in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, Joseph broke that for his family. I was um, riding my bike on the High Trestle Bridge Trail this uh, last week. It's awesome. It's a treasure in Iowa. I suggest everybody do that. At night, they light it up and it's super cool. So I'm riding it on Friday and Friday is 
apparently, according to weather, the weather app, was like the worst UV rays. And man, I was feeling it. I don't know if you've ever been out in the sun and you could feel it burning you, but that was that day. And so it's burning me and I'm just like having my time with the Lord. And I'm just, I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking, of, yeah, it's absolutely true. Then I thought, you know, it's true also specifically in the family because what is the one sin we see between all these generations? Deception. Pretending you're something you're not. Abraham, pretending to be a brother when he's a husband, pretending his sister's his wife, I mean, his wife's his sister. And through a certain point of view, Obi-Wan Kenobi, she sort of was, but he knew better. He knew what the deception was, and he did it twice. And now we see with Isaac, what I just read to you, Isaac falling into the same sin as his father fell into. Now, Isaac will have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Those will be the, Jacob will be the one we talk about next. Jacob literally means heel grabber or deceiver. And when Jacob decided, instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of waiting on God's promise, he would go into his father. His father's practically blind. And his father said, is that you, my son Esau? Jacob, wearing camel hair, says, yes, it's me. And, you know, of course, Isaac is like kind of a feminine voice for Esau. Are you sure you're Esau? Then he grabs his arms. He's like, nobody's hairy like that except for Esau. (laughs) And so he himself is deceived by his son. Jacob has 12 sons, and they, they pay him back in kind. Oh, my word. There's this time where, where Abraham brokers a peace with a neighboring nation, and um, the part of the peace is them having their, all their males circumcised, and his two sons decide that's not good enough. Even though we didn't say anything about this in the dead of night, they kill them all. And the shame of that is all around Jacob. They then get so envious of their youngest brother at the time when it was just 11 of them, Joseph. They get so envious of him, they think, we're going to kill him. And just one of them gets them to reason, and they decide to sell him into slavery. And when they go back to their father, Jacob, they pretend it's a wild animal that mauled their brother, and they rip his coat of many colors. Their youngest brother at the time, Joseph, then we know this story, we'll go throughout this story of how he, he raises from a slave to the governor of Egypt. And now during this famine, his brothers come to him and they don't recognize him. And he has a choice here. Can he continue playing the deception and, and allow their naivete to get the better of them? Or will he show himself to them? And at first he doesn't want to, he wants to be like them under this deception. But we know that after a while, he's just like, I'm, I'm, I can't do this. I'm your brother. I'm your brother. Then as we go on in Genesis, their father, Jacob, dies. And the brother's thinking, grace is too good to be true. He was only nice to us because our father was alive and he knew it would kill our father if he just decided to do away with us. So they lie. The deception comes back. And, you, and if you're a reader in Genesis, if you kind of come from a pure perspective, you should be somewhat worried. You're like, is this going to continue going on and on and on? Will there never be a break in this generational sin? And Joseph sees through the lie. And instead of punishing them, he tells them, am I in the place of God? And finally, someone decides I'm not going to be who I'm not. And I'm going to put this, I'm going to trust this to God. And the cycle is broken. As we get into Genesis chapter 26, we see this cycle. In 26, you almost be wondering, you're almost like Fred Savage from The Princess Bride. You're reading it wrong. We already went over this part. I'm not. It's chapter 26. It sounds very similar because this is almost beat for beat exactly what his father Abraham did. Lessons for fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, I want you to know something, that God had set up the family so that the son would be like the father, that the daughter would be like the mother. So watch what legacy you give your children. All of us, whether you have kids or not, watch the spiritual legacy you're giving. For the people of Israel, their king could give them a legacy they could either accept or reject and lead them into sin. Watch the legacy you give. Young people, watch the legacy you're starting right now. You're creating a family story. See, I wonder with Jacob, when he decided to deceive Isaac, if he knew the price he would pay later on if he would do it. So I'm telling you right now, here's your big warning. Things you're doing today 
are things your kids will do later on. You're like, I'm not even thinking of kids. You should. You should start. Even if you don't have kids, if you never have kids, you leave behind a legacy. Your actions, and here's the thing for kids, and whether children, so all of us, we're all children of adults, whether you are an adult and you have kids of your own or grandkids of your own, here's what I want to tell you. This is something that you need to know. You do not have to accept every legacy handed to you. You do not have to accept every legacy handed to you. Your actions are your own, and no one gets the excuse, my dad was like this, so so am I. I don't know how many of you know this. My father, Ronald Fisher, was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. His father's father's father was an alcoholic, all the way to the old country. And if anybody in my family, man, was not an alcoholic, it's only because they couldn't buy enough alcohol to get drunk constantly. So for me, when I was growing up, even before I knew the Lord, I swore to myself, when I become an adult, I don't have to live like this. It is not a foregone conclusion. I can decide to live a different way. You can break the chain yourself. Here's here's four ways you can break, break that chain. First of all, when you talk about generational curses, we go back to the second commandment, which the Lord says that for those who hate him, For those who hate him, he'll revisit the sins of the fathers upon the son. Notice, for those who hate him, this isn't believers. If you're a believer, you cannot hate him. You love him because he first loved you. So that's for unbelievers. But for those who love me, believers, blessings for the thousands generation. You want to break a generational curse? It's easy. One, first of all, get saved. And in getting saved, you decide you want to live for the Lord. You decide against this. You see the pattern in your family's life. You decide, I don't have to live that way, so I won't. And after you've decided in your heart, you pray for the Lord to help because you are not strong enough on your own to resist sin. You need the Lord's help. The third thing, remember. Remember you have the Holy Spirit of God. And that's power to live a righteous life. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You can. You're telling them, no, I can't. Yes, you can. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. So I told you my family background. So this is how I really feel about alcohol. I don't know if I've ever explained this to you. This is how in my heart I feel about alcohol. It's like playing Russian roulette, but with your family. It's like playing Russian roulette, but with your family. Russian roulette, you have the revolver. You put the one cartridge in, you, sh- you spin it, and then you take a click. But you're doing that with your family because I saw what happened in my family. I, I remember waking up. I, never, I remember as a child going to sleep, never knowing if I would be wake, woken up in the middle of the night by adults raging at each other and having to go someplace safe. So that's how I feel emotionally about that. So I decided I would not do that. So then as I get older, um, I, know, I know that, you know, um, what I'm trying to say here is that if I'm ever tempted to drink, I remember that, and I remember the the oath I made before God. I pray for God to help me, and then I remember this. I have the Holy Spirit inside of me, and and he produces fruit in me. And this is a testimony to everybody else, because this also taps down my pride. It's not me. It's not my own effort trying to do this. It's the Holy Spirit inside of me to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a chapter about fathers and sons. Not just Isaac and Abraham, but also Abimelech here. Abimelech, um, his name means um, son of the king. Uh, And this son of the king um, was the son of the Abimelech. We remember from early on in Abraham's story. That's why I said this sounds so very familiar. Because it's probably either one of two things. It's either a title. Abimelech's either a title for the kings of the Philistines. Just like Pharaoh was the title of the kings of the, uh, the Egyptians. Or it's like Herod in the New Testament, in which it's a dynastic name, meaning a name that you have between generations for that dynasty. So it's one of the two, but he is the son of the previous, the previous ruler of the Philistines. And we see between these fathers and sons different things. One of these sons remembers the, the actions of his father and chooses the better way, and one doesn't. Unfortunately, it's the unbeliever who acts pro- properly and the believer who doesn't. As we look through this chapter, we'll see, one, the promise of God. Two, we'll talk about problems. 
and how to deal with the problems as they come up. And third, the plan of God, the promise of God. As we begin this chapter, I read to you now, there was a famine in the land. Famines in Genesis, the events of Genesis, um, the events in Genesis, once we get to Abraham, um, famine is used as a way of moving the story along, moving the narrative along. Um, famine in Egypt. Abraham, in Abraham's time, there's a famine. In fact, that's what the scripture says. And he leaves for Egypt. In Isaac's time, there's a famine and he tries to get to Egypt. In Jacob's time, there's a famine and him and all of his family move to Egypt. It's easy to thank God when you have a full glass of water and your belly is full. It's real faith is when you praise him and trust him when you're thirsty and hungry. For in Isaac's day, this is a real world problem. It's a serious one, but it's also a common one. Water in the desert is life and you need to find water. If there's a famine in your place, you need to go to a place where there's not a famine, where there is water, where there's something to eat. God often uses discomfort to move us along. For the early church, they just wanted to hang out together. In fact, many people are like, we want to be an Acts. We want to be an Acts church. And I'm like, I don't. Have you read Acts? Um, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Like, we want to be like the early church. I'm like, have you read Corinthians? Oh, Lord, help us. Let's not be a Corinthian church. Um, they just want to hang out together. And that was in opposition to the very word of Christ before he ascends to the Father, that they should go into all the world, not stay here in Jerusalem, but to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So persecution happens. Persecution moves them. And it's like an explosion into that, that early Roman world of the gospel. God often uses those trials in our life to move us when nothing else will. God will use everything in our life to move us to greater and deeper relationship with him. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final an unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Man, that is true. When somebody is going along, and this is one of my, my great fears as pastor, is that you can be in this church. You can go through our children's ministry. You can go through our youth ministry. You can go through our adult Sunday school. You can go through my classes on how to read the Bible and get the most out of the Bible. You can come here Sunday morning, raising your hands, talking about how good the Lord is and come to the very end of your life. And the Lord says, away from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you because you're only going through the motions. You only like the feeling of self-righteousness that going to church gave you as opposed to it going any deeper. So God will use he will use the tragedies in our life to wake us up. Let me move on. Abimelech. We see Abimelech here and we're like, Have we, haven't we heard about Abimelech before? Well, I kind of, I already said this. You know, I, I, always, I always spoil all my little revelations for you guys. Abimelech, once again, means uh, king of my father or son of my father. Uh, whether it's a proper name or a title, we can be assured that um, this is a different Abimelech than the one Abraham dealt with. Um, in fact, if we remember, if we go back to chapter 12 of Genesis, um, not chapter 12, sorry, um, 21 of Genesis, um, God was in the middle of cursing the Philistine people in which they were barren. And if you don't have little Philistines, you don't have Philistines at all. So, God, so God did not allow them to have kids. And then once, uh, once the king of the Philistines, Abimelech, chooses the right decision, lets her go, blesses Abraham, they start having kids again. So this Abimelech was probably born after that. And he probably heard the story of what happened here when his father offended the God of the Hebrews and that the God of the Hebrews appeared to him and said, behold, you're dead. Everybody wants a word from the Lord. How would you like that word? <laughs> Behold, you're a dead man. And he's like, in the innocence of my conscience, I did, did this. And God's like, I know I've kept you from sin. Now you need to make the decision. And here's the thing for us. We want to try to explain away our sins by being like, well, why did God allow me in this situation? He gives you warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. And now it's your decision. 
and it's your decision alone. We sometimes want to be like, oh, if God knows all these, your decisions are your own and nobody forces you to do anything. You decide what you're going to do. So he decides, of course, to honor the Lord in this. And then Abimelech knows that every breath he breathes is borrowed from the God of the Hebrews. No wonder he's so on edge. He's so ready to make sure that he doesn't sin the same way his father almost sinned. Because he knows what's going on here. He learned the good, the good lessons of the past. Unfortunately, Abraham did not. This is a land of blessing. So in verse 2, I know we're moving somewhat slow, but in the middle of this, it picks up real fast. Um, Verse 2, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of, of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring. So there's something I want to just take a second here and explain. So he's not in where he was in the promised land. He's in the land of the Philistines, but he's also, he's still in the land of promise. Gerar is still in the land that is promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I got um, some maps here. Now I just, I'm not going to say who, but someone said they liked when I show maps. So if you don't, blame them. Um... All right, huzzah. All right, if you can see, hopefully you can see right here. Here's the land of the Philistines, the little, uh, you know, dotted line. And within there, you will have Gerar. And um, so I'm just explaining this that, so he's in the land of the Philistines, but he's actually still within the promise of God. So go to my next slide. All right. So that one was a very technical one. That one's a little more fun. And I figured since you wouldn't be able to see a very detailed one anyway, I might as well do a fun one. I don't know if you can see this, so... <laughs> I should have got that laser pointer, Barbara, that you gave me. Um, over where Tel Aviv is, if you come on down, um, right by the coast, that's where the land of the Philistines was, but it's part of the promised land, so he is still in the promise of God. He is still in the land of blessing. It is... It, um, it is, and um, it is his land and not yet. It's still part of the promise of God. When God tells him to stay there, he is telling him to stay in the promise and not to trust in the world's powerful, a.k.a. Egypt. It's a great thing for us because we're, we're very willing when we're going under problems to run anywhere other than the Lord. There's the wrong thing to do. There's the absolutely wrong. That's what, that's what Abraham does. He goes to Egypt. And in Egypt, he picks up a maidservant for his wife named Hagar. If you don't know the story, it doesn't work very well. In fact, the riches he gets from Egypt cause a rift between him and his nephew. Stay in the place of promise. Abraham, his father, as his father did, and like father, like son, problem is, it wouldn't be easy. Um, While it might be easy in the short term, it's not easy in the long term. It's always better to stay in the blessing of God. The I statements of God, when God blesses, and this is, the, this is number one in the blessing of God, God blesses Isaac here, and he gives him a very similar blessing to that of Abraham, his father. I'm going to point this out every time we go over this, the Abrahamic blessing. God is saying he will do this. It's not an if and then. That was the law of God, Moses. This is an unconditional blessing, an unconditional covenant. Um, I have a slide that says I statements. So I just want to go over these real briefly here. I'll go over them every time we have the blessing. Here are the I statements of the Lord. I will be with you. I'm going to wait on that because God tells him that later. I will bless you. That might seem like an obvious one, but we constantly don't believe it. We constantly don't believe this. God tells us, I will bless you. And we're like, no, I got to bless me. I got to take things into my own hands and I got to do what I have to do. And that's what happened with Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. He says, I will bless you. I will give you all these lands. So does Isaac need to take his, to take his, uh, um, his blessing into his own hand and start a crusade against those there? No, because God will give him these lands in time. God will give his progeny these lands in time. He will establish the oath and he will multiply. Like Sarah, his wife will also deal with infertility, but God's word, God's promise will be, will be accomplished. To Isaac's, to Isaac's benefit, he obeys the Lord. In verse five, he does what he's supposed to do. Abraham wasn't perfect, 
We know this because it's recorded for us, but look at how God sees Abraham in verse five. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. As the reader, we're probably wondering, it's like, okay, but you know, he did what you told him not to. I mean, like a couple times, there's partial obedience. That's how God sees you, my friend. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those aren't just words. God really sees it that way. As your pastor, I counsel you through times, probably the lowest times of your lives. I know things about people in the congregation that I pray none of you know. And I'm with you and I'm there with you in the low moments when you say things and you do things that you're not supposed to do. And you know what I tell you during those times? I want you to know, you come on a Sunday morning, I don't see that. And I mean it. Because after I'm done talking with somebody, I pray, Holy Spirit, help me to see them now as you see them. Now, if you're, if you're in rebellion, I'm going to continue to call you on rebellion until you come back to the faith. But if you are repentant, if you have a broken spirit, then God, give me your eyes in this. Help me see you the way that God sees you. And that if he casts your sins as far as the east from the west, who am I to hold on to them? If there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, how inappropriate is for your pastor or your fellow brother or sister in Christ to say, no, I'm going to condemn you now. How ridiculous it is for you and me to do the same to each other when God does not see us this way. Abraham obeyed and so does Isaac and obedience is in the DNA. Obedience to God's revelation is in the DNA of a believer. From here, after the blessing, we see problems start arising. In verses 6 through 16, we see these problems. We have two mistakes. One's a mistake, one's a literal sin because he actually does commit it. Isaac has two mistakes in this chapter. One was trying to go to Egypt, in which God himself corrects. The other is lying to save his own skin. In very much the same way his father does, he lies about his wife to try to save his own skin. And for this, God will use as a pagan king to correct him. God uses a pagan king to correct him. And how sad is it when God has to use the unbelievers in our life to correct a believer who's fallen into sin. Some, Some people think that the key to living a good Christian life is constantly having a revelation of God. But what we see here as we are reading, he has a revelation of God and then falls immediately into sin. That's where our heart is. That's why we're so dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. Because we can have a big revelation from God and some people are like, God doesn't speak to me. It's like, well, open up your Bible and start reading. Start softening your heart to the word of the Lord. We can have God to appear to us in one moment and for us to still decide to sin. It's an unfortunate fact um, of the dual nature that we have with the sin nature and of the spirit nature. If we live to please the spirit from the spirit, we reap life. And if we, so to, if we live to please the sin nature from the spirit, we reap destruction. He is sinning in the same way as his, as his father. In general, parents don't think, um, in general, Parents, don't think that your words will have any impact on your kids if your actions don't match your words. In general, parents, don't think your words have any impact on your kids if your actions don't support your words. To use a metaphor right here, if you're telling your kids not to smoke with a cigarette in your hand, you might as well save your breath. Stop smoking. Show your kids what it's like for somebody you have to struggle, suffer through all of the withdrawal and what it takes to get free of that and then tell them, hey, here's, this, here's our family story. We overcome sin. We overcome habits and hangups in our life. We strive against it. Not that we're perfect, but we have a perfect God who has our back. Family stories are so important. Abimelech, he had his own family story. And he got the right things from this because Abimelech, he is ready for, for what's going to happen, where it could happen in his life because of what he had heard about his own father. And in verse 8, when they had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Yeah, he just so happened to look out a window. We know that God orchestrates these things, right? And he sees, he sees them laughing. How does, how does he find out that they are married and not brother and sister like they said? He sees them giggling. 
This is going to be fun for you because there's something lost in the translation um, when it comes to the word laughing. All of your translations probably, if you have different translations, I'm assuming, they translate this word laughing or uh, laughing differently. Um, Each one is trying to communicate something that's unfortunately lost in the translation. Some say caressing. Some say, some, some say showing endearment. Um, the KJV says sporting, which is, you know, I got to love the KJV. You ba- basically need a translation for that translation because there's so many words we don't use. We don't use the word sporting anymore. They're all trying to communicate something that's somewhat lost in the translation. The, the literal understanding of this translation is a playful affection that lovers have for one another. Joking around, playfully mocking one another, flirting, laughing. But it's actually so much deeper than this because it's the word the author chooses for this because there's other words he could have chosen. It's the root of this and the form of this word that we've seen multiple times in Isaac's life. We see it quite often, in fact. Um, The author wants you to stop and consider him by using this word because it has the same root as what Abraham did when he heard that his wife Sarah would bear him a son. It's what Sarah did when she doubted that very same promise, though she heard it from the very lips of God. When the, woman, when the women in the village heard that Sarah had given birth, they did this. When God told Abraham about his son, he said, you will name him Isaac, and Isaac means to laugh. To laugh. You know, there's some things we try to hide, but eventually it just gets found out. And from his very nature and the providence of God that led him, that bound him together with Rebecca, it shines through. And the author, the Holy Spirit, and he used as a human author, Moses, he wants us to stop and consider, who has God made you? What has he called you? You can try living in rebellion, but you're still that. And that's the story of the prodigal son. Is he still the son of the father? He's still the son of the father, and it's only, when he gets, it's only when he starts desiring a pig's breakfast he decides to come back, and the father, with arms wide open, embraces him. Stop and consider how the blessing and promise of God remains even in our disobedience, and hear this, the call of God to return, the call of God to repent, the call of God Stop what you're doing and may God use everything to wake you up from your spiritual slumber to hear him, his voice once again. Flee from sin. That's what Abimelech does. He sees them laughing and he has this extreme reaction. He doesn't wait and see what comes up or uses the excuses. Well, that's on them. As far as he's concerned, this particular sin in his country is like having an atom bomb in your house with the timer on. And if we treated sin like that, we'd have a whole lot less headaches in our life. Don't mess around with sin. It will kill you. James 1.14. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully born, gives birth to death. Sin seems like a cuddly pet, but it's a ravaging wolf. God told Cain, behold, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Sin is active, not passive. And if you're not actively resisting sin, then you are just, you're, you're, a, you're a great meal for a hungry wolf. If you're not putting on the armor when the flaming darts come in, they hit. They don't get extinguished by the shield of faith if you don't have the armor on. In verses uh, 12 through 16, we, we see this conflict and we see in what I read to you today, Abimelech, he he makes an oath amongst the people. Anybody messes with them, he's going to put them to death. And in verse 12, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the land year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. Now in our time, a hundredfold may not be much. In fact, I'm not a farmer. Some of you know, and you're kind of laughing at me right now. But I know this from just what I read from different historians, a hundredfold in the desert of Gerar during a famine, that's God. That's God's blessing. In verse 13, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. As the uh, philosopher, the notorious B.I.G. said, mo money, mo problems. We see once again, 
When you succeed and are blessed, just expect envy to come out of the woodwork. Here's an envy test for you. I got this actually from Thomas Aquinas, that if you find it easier to weep with those who weep, but harder to rejoice with those who rejoice, then you probably have a problem with envy. If you cannot see the triumphs of other people, especially in ways that you see yourself, and you can't rejoice with them, that's an envious heart. These Philistines are so blinded by their envy, they break faith with the oath they made with Abraham and fill in the wells that he dug. One of them being the well that their previous king had made an oath to Abraham on. Here we see the first instance of Jew, Jewish Jewphobia. See, many people have no problem with the Jews as long as they can see them as a persecuted minority. But once they become mighty, now it's time to be like, ah, you guys need to move somewhere else. Now, so as we continue to read here, verse, third, um, verse 14, he had many possessions, flocks and herds, and many servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. Verse 16, and Abimelech said to Abraham, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Those, those, old, those old wells being redug. In verse 18, and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. So he's redigging these old wells. Let's go into the plan of God. We have this major setback. God had told him, settle in this land, you'll be fine. But now the king of the Philistines says, now you need to get out of here. And every place they keep going to, the Philistines, they stop up that well. Now stopping up wells in that time, by the way, it's kind of like, it's kind of like an action of war. Because if you can stop your enemy from getting any water, it takes care of itself. You don't have to even lift a blade. Remember, they had made an oath with Abraham for him and his children and his children's children. But now they forget about it. Because once again, they're very intimidated and they're very envious of Isaac and his family. Isaac has having to redig these old wells. It is a setback. But let me tell you something. Setbacks are not the final word. Setbacks are not the final word. And trouble in the promise of God is not evidence that God has left you. It is not evidence that God no longer cares, that God is not on your side. Setbacks are not the final word. Isaac, as we find out, takes this personally. Later on in verse 27, he asked them why they come to him since they hate him. This looks, be, looks bleak right now, but setbacks are not the final word. The actions of sinful men will not take away the promise of God. Verse 18, we saw those redug wells. Isaac, now being in the region which his father had been in, redigs those old, old wells. We don't think much about water because we live in a relative, relative paradise. I mean, I got water right here that I'm drinking. We have access to it at any point in time. When uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and I forget his real name, came back to the United States, he took some of these Bedouin farmers with him. Same kind of people that we're talking about in the scripture right here. He takes them to England, and they're just amazed. And uh, they're in these hotel rooms, and as they're about to leave, the hotel owner comes to him and is like, so this is weird. All of our sinks and all of those rooms you had those Bedouins in are gone. And so he checks their packs, and they had stolen the sinks because they thought they didn't understand the plumbing thing. So they thought, we can go into our land, and we can just turn these knobs, and we'll have unlimited clean water. That's too bad for them, I'm sure, when he explained to them. It's like, yeah, that's just, that's just metal. Um, God provides for Abraham in the desert, and he provides for Isaac in the desert. Remember his promises that he would provide for them. Maybe you need to hear this. He will provide for you in the desert as well. He will provide for you in the desert. Redig the old wells. Remember the past promises of God. Remember the past blessings of God and know in your heart that those things, will, those things are promises over your life. In Revelation chapter two, verse four, when God is giving his rebuke to the church of Ephesus, he says this in verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
So what should you do if you've abandoned the love? Your love has grown cold. Your relationship with God isn't as hot and as passionate as it used to be. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Maybe you're here, or maybe you're watching at home. I prayed this morning. Somebody's watching from home right now, and I want to tell you with all of my heart, repent. Do the things you once did at first. Remember your first love. Isaac redigs these wells. He gives them the old names his father had because he remembers the promises of God that God had said to Abraham and now to Isaac. And in all these things, in verses 19 through 20, but when Isaac's servants dug in the, we- in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well uh, Isek because they contended with him. Verse 21, then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sinar. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called it Reveroth. Uh, uh, I should have Becca read this. Um, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there, he went up to Beersheba. Isaac is much different than his father or his sons in that he avoids conflict. In general, Isaac is someone who avoids conflict. In general, that's actually good. Romans twelve eighteen says that as far as it depends on us, live at peace with others. Now, of course, there's conditions there as far as it depends on us. We have the phrase that, you know, it takes two to tango, tango. But, um, I mean... Somebody can hate you and you not hate them. So I don't know what kind of dance that is. Is, that a, is there a dance you can do with yourself? Maybe the stupid modern goth dancing is kind of like that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24, Paul tells Timothy that the man of God is not quarrelsome. This is one of my life verses because sometimes things get on my nerves. Sometimes people choose sin and I wish they wouldn't. And I have to remind myself, the man of God is not quarrelsome. The man of God is not quarrelsome. The man of God is not quarrelsome. Um, this is a time of conflict, and Isaac is feeling unwelcome, and he's feeling great hostility. Confident, conflict is not evidence that you are not in God's will. Can I say that again? Because sometimes we have this like, oh, I don't have a piece about this. Sometimes conflict is evidence that you are in the middle of God's will, not that God's will has abandoned you. We think, how can this be? How can, shouldn't this be easy if I'm in the middle of God's will? No, following God is hard. The easy way, the broad way, that's the way to destruction. The way to life is narrow. I heard a quote once that the time comes when you must decide between what is right and what is easy. I like that quote because the quote doesn't even want to argue with you. What is easy is very rarely what is right. Beersheba, verse 23, I mentioned that before I was done reading here. Beersheba, do you remember Beersheba from earlier on? It's where Abraham and Abimelech, the father, had made their oath. We don't exactly know what Beersheba means. It either means the um, well of the seven or the well of the oath. I think you can call it the well of the seven oaths because there they sacrificed seven ewe lambs. They made a covenant, a covenant in which they have now broken And it's in Beersheba where Isaac had grown up, where he saw the providence and the favor of God. And this is where God appears to him. And we pick up at verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him. This is the second and last time God appears to Isaac. The same night and said, I am the the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. This sermon might be done right now. Because this has been on my mind, my heart this whole week. Fear not, for I am with you. We we talk a lot about not fearing. Now, COVID was a time of great fear, but why should we not fear? He is with us. This is the promise he gave to Abraham. This is the promise he gives to Isaac. It's a promise he gives to Jacob. 
It's the promise he gives to Jacob's 12 sons. It's the promise he gives throughout all the scriptures. Then we get to the New Testament and there is this girl who is betrothed to be married to somebody else and she is told she'll be give birth and she should name him Jesus. He'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. What are you going through today? Some of you are going through things that I don't even know about. He's telling you, fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. This chapter has been an illustration of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He lies me, he leads me beside still waters. He walks me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Isaac has been walking through this valley and he's messed up, sure, because sheep wander, right? In David's day, calling somebody a sheep was a pejorative. It's kind of pejorative in ours. I think we should probably use the word lemming because lemming's more apt than sheep, but whatever. Um, but David's like, I want to be a sheep of the Lord because I, oh, yeah, sheep wander. Sheep don't know what's good for them. I don't know. I wonder if sheep are kind of like cats and dogs where they eat things that'll kill them too. And they need somebody there to rip it out of their mouth, even though they fight them the entire time. And we see this, even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. See, I don't know what you're going through. But he's telling you today, fear not, I am with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. And maybe right now things are going good in your life and you're like, Pastor Jason, stop talking about that. You're jinxing it. I'm sorry, I'm going to share something with you. You're not going to like it. Good times are not going to last forever, but bad times won't either. That God ebb and flows the activities in our life that we might revere him. And in everything, in the best of times and the worst of times, he is with us. You get what that means? This, this last week, I'm just going to be transparent with you guys. I have been just going through it. Every day when I wake up, it is the things that are, and it's not even stuff that's happened to me personally, but the things in our church. And it's been tearing me up inside. And God keeps saying to me, fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. And I am believing God has such great, I, I, I absolutely agree with Brent right here. God has such great things with our church. And the enemy's furious over it. So he's coming out in all force. And anybody who can be shooken will be shook right now. So put on the armor of God already. And as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil. Because he tells you, I am with you. And he's walking beside us. And we don't understand in the moment everything we're going through, why we're going through it, or what will be the end of it. But we know this, fear not, I am with you. Because there's no way Isaac could have understood that generations after generations after his time, the Redeemer would come, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the snake, though the snake bruised his heel. But he just like, he just trusted and obeyed. He builds an altar he builds an altar. He saw that in his dad, and that's a very good thing. And an altar's purpose, it's fourfold. You can look at it like acts. Acts is a great way to prayer. pray. A, adoration, where we praise God for who he is, not what he's done, who he is, his divine attributes. C, confession. Confess your sins one to another. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The word confess that they're translating from the Greek is homologos, which means have the same word. Stop feeling bad that, other, that you've destroyed other people's lives or your own life and doing, you speak the same word as God about your sin. And from that, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. T, thanksgiving. It's at an altar where you give your, your, your offerings of thanksgiving, where you realize that every good thing in your life comes from the Father of the heavenly lights. See, supplication, that is where we make our request known to God. Verses 26 through 30, I'm not going to read that for you today or to the end of the chapter. But you know what happens? So he doesn't fight, he doesn't get upset, he doesn't kill the people who are filling in his wells. You know what happens? 
peace because God's been fighting his battles throughout all this. Abimelech and his captain come up to Isaac and they tell him, we see that you're really mighty right now. We want to have peace with you. And Isaac, once again, in verse 27, his response is, um, why? You hate me. Which is kind of a childish response, but I'm sure that's what he's feeling. So God brings peace. He will cause, he will cause miracles out of messes. He will cause everything to be to your good and to his glory in time. But we need to have a peace in the moment, a shalom. And in verses 34 through 35, this is a great way to end this. This has been a very heavy, heavy sermon. But here's a really fun way to end it. He has to deal with the same kind of headaches and nonsense you have to deal with too. Because he gets, has problems with his in-laws. Now my in-laws are wonderful. They're not perfect and neither am I. So sometimes there's some conflicts. But in general, man, fantastic. But here we have in verse 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bere the Hittite, to be his wife, and Beshmeth, the daughter of the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. If you're having problems with in-laws today, know this, you're not the first people to have problems with in-laws. Esau, he doesn't walk in the ways of his father. And in fact, if there's one, if there's one thing for you to hear from this, is that um, don't have favorites amongst your kids. And Make sure you love God more than you love them so that you can help them, rebuke them, punish and discipline them when they need it. Because Isaac favored Esau and Esau doesn't walk in the ways of his father Isaac because of it. Isaac trusts his family to find a bride for him, one wife. Esau has two pagan wives and they make life bitter for Isaac. Worship team, would you come up at this time? This has been a chapter of fathers and sons hearkening back to previous chapters. And I want to share this with you, that you have three fathers. And I don't mean that in a weird, modern way. You have your biological father. All of you are here, so you had a biological father. You have your first father, Adam. And through Adam, sin comes into the world, sin and death. But there's a second Adam, Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, you have a heavenly father. And you constantly have a choice between all three. Now, your biological father, you honor your biological father. You follow him as he followed Christ, or if not, you just still honor them. You have your father, Adam. Should you walk in the ways of your father, Adam, and sin, and a slave to sin? Or should you walk in the ways of the second Adam, Jesus Christ? As we sing this last song, it's our time to reflect on the message today. Here's what I want you to reflect on. Am I using excuses right now for sin? Whatever the excuse may be. Have I taken the legacies I'm not supposed to take? And the second question, am I leaving the kind of legacy I should be leaving? Whether you have kids or not, you're leaving a spiritual legacy. Am I leaving a legacy of a person who is flawed, but in devotion to Jesus Christ? Am I modeling what it looks like for somebody who repents, who is desperately seeking the Lord in my life? Or maybe the Lord's dealing with you on something completely different, something in my message that you latched on, the Holy Spirit said, that's for you. At this last song, this is our time to reflect on the message and to go to the throne of grace with confidence.